0: the last minute, Hadassah got sick on our drive-in, and uh, you're always relying on your parents, so first thing I did was call my parents, Hadassah was calling out for us, and I called my parents, uh, they're here, and they swooped in and saved us, so, all right, well, let's, uh, let's begin with uh, prayer, and then we'll dive in to Isaiah. Isaiah. Gracious Father, we thank you again that we can come together as your people, as your sons and daughters, and uh, to see how you have revealed yourself and your redemptive plan in the book of Isaiah. We are thankful, Father, for its message of encouragement. We are also saddened, and um, we are reminded of the warnings of judgment because you are a just God. I pray that we would not set these aside easily, uh, but that we would remember uh, the consequences of our sin before a holy God. But also remember uh, that we have hope, and that hope is sure and everlasting because of the work and the person of your Son Jesus Christ. So in Him we give thanks, in Him we we ask these things to you, our heavenly Father. And it's to His glory that we study and we worship. Uh, Father, So we ask uh, that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter uh, 28. Isaiah 28. Again, hopefully you have read these sections ahead of time because I I imagine, like even last week, that it's just so much... um, Uh, information that it would be really easy to get lost Um, not that you can't gain anything if you haven't read it and I don't mean to say that at all but um, I know it's a lot of information and can seem uh, disjointed Um, hopefully we won't be quite as uh, pressured in our time uh, today we don't have quite as much uh, to cover uh, and I do, really, the, the best part is at the end, is it also often happens with these lessons. Uh, so I want to make sure that we have some time there and aren't rushed. Well, as we have been working our way through Isaiah... Um, there have been these recurring themes that kind of keep coming up, and I, I keep putting this slide up because I want you, as you are reading through and as, you're, as we're going through these lessons, to keep seeing, oh yeah, there's that, oh yeah, there's that, I see that again. Um, so today, we're going to see God's sovereignty, trust in God or trust in man, that's a big one for today's, uh, judgment and hope, another big one, the remnant, and the Holy One of Israel. Uh, So, in each of these uh, parts of the book of Isaiah, these different themes keep coming up and uh, always good to kind of keep them handy. Maybe a good idea, even at the the front of your Bible, maybe on the front page, to write some of those down uh, so when you come back. Well, we've we've gone through part uh, one, which is uh, one, uh, really the part one is one through twelve. We divided that up into a couple of, uh, uh, well, actually three lessons, right? So we did one through five, then chapter six on its own, and then seven through 12. Um, And then the second part is the part that we did last week, which was 13 through 27. And then uh, this week, we're going to cover 28 through 35. So really the main theme of this section of scripture, and if you can kind of keep this in mind, and it helps you with the context of the understanding, is will you trust God or will you trust man? And in in this particular passage, the man is Egypt, okay? So are you going to trust in your political alliance with Egypt or are you going to trust in God? And really, that is... um, That theme is kind of summarized in chapter 31, verse 1. Does anybody have that? Just the first verse. Just the first verse. Okay, so there, there's your theme. Now, the literary context here, because remember, there's literary context and there's historical context. They're they're kind of one and the same. But remember that a lot of these, uh, all of these prophecies are Isaiah's. Okay, so I want you to hear that loud and clear. But likely, then his disciples that we read about earlier, likely they're the ones that kind of structured this how it flows out in a literary form. And so they put certain parts together. So remember that chapters 36 through 39, which we're going to do next week, that is kind of the hinge on which the whole book of Isaiah turns. So there's the first hinge, I guess, or the first door which would be really Assyria is in view as um, kind of the enemy or the the immediate threat. Um, There are some allusions, though, to Babylon during those chapters and everything. And then in the second section, it's really Babylon that's in view, okay? And so if you think of those central chapters as kind of that hinge uh, here, we are in the context of Assyria. And what happens in the immediate uh, following chapters is there's a break from this poetic narrative that you've all been reading and kind of bearing through. And you're going to get something probably more familiar to us, which is a narrative, right? So the narrative is just the telling of a story. And it's going to be the telling of the story of the siege of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's reign. So that's that's the literary context. The historical context is is just that, 2 Kings chapter 18. Um, so it's where uh, Sennacherib has come and laid siege to Jerusalem. This is in about 701 B.C., okay? So remember, northern Israel fell, 722, and then the siege is happening here at 701, okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that's kind of the the historical and the literary context. And then there's this this idea of judgment and salvation that we've been seeing throughout the book of Isaiah at at different places. Sometimes it's just a small verse, right, that kind of interrupts the flow of thought of judgment, uh, reminding us of God's goodness, of his graciousness towards his people, that there will be a remnant. But then other times there's really glorious chapters that occur, like chapter 12, um, and so uh, here we have the, uh, these two chapters of final judgment and salvation in chapter 34 and 35, and they're really magnificent. So one way to kind of think of the outline of these chapters, and we'll go into this in a little bit more detail, but first of all is the crisis in chapter 28 and 29. And that is that there are foolish leaders And there's false counsel. And because of that, um, uh, they're in the present um, predicament that they're in. And so in order to get out of that predicament, which is the impending attack of Assyria, right? uh, Their solution, they think, from a human perspective, is to rely on Egypt. So that's chapter 30 and 31. But the true solution is not to rely on an alliance, but on God, uh, the Lord as their king. And so that's chapter 32 and 33. And then 34 is a chapter of judgment, in other words, the desert that will result from trusting the nations, as opposed to the garden, the image of a garden, or uh, redemption that will result from trusting God. So kind of a, an outline um, of these chapters. Well, let's look at chapter 28. Again, it's, it's very helpful to keep in mind here in this chapter your literary context, uh, where you're at in your historical context um, of, of what's going on, and I, I think you're going to see that. So if you look at the first 13 verses here, the first 13 verses, verse 1 starts out by saying, ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, I've asked this question before, when you see Ephraim, what are you supposed to call to your mind? Right, very good, the northern ten tribes, okay? So what we have in view here is Israel. Israel. Right, and um, then we 're going to transition after verse uh, at verse fourteen we 're going to transition to Judah or the the leaders of Judah, but the first thirteen are the kind of the northern Israel, and so he he just uh, he indicts these leaders because first and foremost they are proud and and this seems to be um, also a recurring theme of the indictments against either leaders or religious leaders or even the people, that there is a pride there. There's a pride there. And so, if you notice that um, uh, it says that these are proud leaders, and it's not just the politicians, but it's the priests, it's the prophets. So, uh, in verses 1 and and 3, he he keeps teaching about why they are proud. And, And a couple of things that come out in their pride is that they're unteachable. They're unteachable. If you've ever been in a position of hiring somebody for uh, a position where people have to make decisions, I know that one of the things that I look for in a person is, are they teachable? If they come in and they're a know-it-all, I don't really want anything to do with them, right? Because they're just going to be a headache. Um, and so, unfortunately, that is what the leaders here in Israel had. They were unteachable. I think there's a good lesson here for us um, that we need to be teachable. Um, it's real easy to think, you know, as Reformed believers, hey, we got this all figured out, And uh, but we need to be teachable. We need to have a teachable spirit. It's kind of interesting if you look verse 10 and verse 13. It's kind of caught my attention as I was reading it in English, and then as I was reading about it, um, it, it was helpful that they kind of brought this out. So, verse ten says, "For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little." And then it says kind of the same thing in verse thirteen. Well, in the Hebrew, my understanding is again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but my understanding is, is that this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense translating it directly to English, but that they're using the same um, syllables kind of in a repetitive fashion, uh, almost as if you were talking to a little child. And so the, the point is, is that God is saying, you, um, you despise being taught, and so I'm going to teach you as a little child. Okay? So you're unteachable in your pride, so I'm going to speak to you in a little child. Uh, think of how we relate to, to little kids, you know, and trying to explain um, something. So um, that's kind of, we really don't know exactly how that comes over into the English, but that's kind of the thought um, there. Also, uh, I, I think another just very apt. Warning that comes out here and then in one other section that I don't spend a whole lot of time on uh, elsewhere in this part is that the leaders, there's a lot of emphasis that they're drunk on alcohol, right? They're drunk on alcohol. Um, And it's really a a means of escapism. This isn't really about alcoholism. This is really, the idea is they're trying to escape. And so how do they try to escape their circumstances? by drugging themselves, by drinking, right? Have any of you ever read, and I'm not necessarily recommending the book, okay, but have any of you ever read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley? My mother-in-law, Gary, Mark, yeah, yeah okay. Um, so if you remember, in that book, it's, it's about a dystopian society, right? And Aldous Huxley's writing this back in the 20s, I think, or 30s, um, and... Uh, Remember, what do the people take to try to just get out of their circumstances? They take a pain medication called Soma. It just kind of helps them forget. Okay? Now, interestingly, today there is a pain medication called Soma, um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, so, but the idea is that it's this escapism, And it doesn't have to be just alcohol or drugs. I think we look for ways to escape our circumstances in all sorts of activities, social media, surfing YouTube, whatever it is, right? To get our mind away from our current circumstances. But the people here are being condemned for just that. Instead of dealing with the problem uh, and the impending judgment, Um, they are drinking themselves uh, to escape. So uh, any comments or questions on that? So then we see this transition in verse 14. So now we've left the northern tribes and we've gone to Judah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. So we know that we've made a switch. Now, Scoffers, I don't know, that kind of may seem at first to be like, oh, what's, I mean, they're scoffers. That's not too big of a deal, right? Um, Maybe it doesn't sound as harsh to us as drunkards. But do you remember Psalm 1? What's the first few verses there? Yeah, of the scoffers, right? So remember don't walk, don't stand and then the last and remember there's a descent there when we looked at that psalm there's a descent there and and so scoffers is like the bottom of the pit all right it's the bottom of the pit so when he when he calls their leaders scoffers he's he's uh he's not being kind okay he's not being kind so there's there's a real indictment there um in 16 and 17 though i I think this is important. The the Lord is showing that his ultimate goal is not just to judge them and to wipe them out, but that there's a renewal that is going to come there spiritually, but it has to come through judgment. And and this is also kind of a sub-theme or a a subplot that you see throughout this section that God wants to restore. He wants to have mercy on his remnant Um, But in order to do that, he needs to cleanse or purge or purify um, the country, the kingdom, to get rid of the unjust. And I think that that is really an idea that God is both just and merciful, and he doesn't forsake one to be the other. Um, And so it's important uh, um, that we see that. And this comes out even more later on. So I don't want to take too much of my thunder there, but um, that idea that in order to get to the restoration, they have to go through the judgment that God has to, to purify. And then in verses 23 through 29, there, there's there's a little bit of a, a switch. And I think if you weren't If you're not aware of this, it can be confusing. So all of a sudden we have this agrarian metaphor um, where Isaiah reverts to agriculture and he talks about a farmer. Um, And he says, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? Which means plow. Um, When he leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow, cumin? And put in wheat, rose, barley in its proper place, for he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. And then he goes on and he talks about different ways that the different grains are treated. And the the point of this is that the simple farmer is more wise than the leaders of Jerusalem. Because he has God as his teacher and he's just implementing the wisdom of what God has shown him to do in the farm. That you till the ground, you break it up, right? Kind of an idea of, of judgment, but then you sow, right? And then you don't continually keep plowing it up, but there's a time to plow, there's a time to plant. And then if you read down further, depending on what you're harvesting, you use different instruments to refine that grain, right? You don't use the same instrument for everything. So God works differently in different circumstances and at different times throughout redemptive history to to treat his people. Sometimes he's very gracious. Sometimes he brings immediate judgment. Sometimes it's a delayed judgment, but it's all according to God's perfect wisdom um, and his perfect timing. So um, helpful here is we see the context of what's happening to uh, Jerusalem and just really seeing God as, um, as a teacher, wise teacher. Uh, we'll see that again as well. All right, chapter 29. We're not changing who's in focus here. Ariel, um, there's really not a lot of debate here. Ariel is referring to Jerusalem. That's just a uh, I guess, a code word uh, or something for Jerusalem. There's different speculation as to why he uses Ariel, um, but I'm not going to get into that, but just know that it's Jerusalem if you want to mark uh, in your book there or your Bible. So in verse 1b here, really <clears throat> the, the indictment is that of false religion. False religion. And in 1b, you see here he says... Um, and year to year, let their feast run their round. In other words, like as if they were running the whole, the whole scope or their whole calendar. And then in 13, it says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. So again, they're going through the motions, right? But it's a false religion. Now, does that phraseology, does that ring a bell? All right, so it's back in chapter 1, right? We've already read that before. And, and he's, he's saying it again here. And so one thing that the reason why this false religion is the very worst of pride is because we have it in our own context today. And I think that we even can fall into the temptation of this. But when we are just going through the motions, a lot of times people go through the motions because they see God as their lucky charm. If I just do this, then God is my servant, and he will do this, this, and this, instead of coming to worship him, recognizing that he is God and we are his servants. Um, And so really important to do a self-check. Why is it that I am coming to church every Sunday? Why is it that I do um, come to hear the Lord's message and to partake of the Lord's Supper? It's, It's not an empty... Um, ritual. But it's uh, bringing worship. And then we see the people's condition in uh, verses 9 and 10. It says, Astonish yourself and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. The prophet's and covered your heads, the seers. So the reference here is, think back to Isaiah 6. What does God tell Isaiah? I want you to go and preach to these people, but they're not going to listen. right? Basically, Isaiah preaching to them is a right it's a hardening. It's a mechanism of judgment that is being carried out. And so that is what is here. They're drunk, but it's not from wine, it's from the judgment. They're being astonished by God acting out, and yet they're still not changing, right? They're asleep. They're blind. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's this sadness that there's no really hope for return for these, uh, for these people. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's what Jesus is doing again in the parables, you know, in the New Testament. And that's why he quotes... Uh, back to Isaiah uh, for that verse fourteen. God says, "Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people." And the "again" is is a uh, recalling the marvelous acts of Him bringing the people out of Egypt and everything that He did to bring them out of. Of Egypt, and so wonder uh, upon wonder. Everything that he's he's doing here, it's it's miraculous. And there are times when God miraculously intervenes, um, such as what he's going to do with the Assyrian army here at the siege. Um, so the question is: Is this in reference the wonder upon wonders? Is it is it in reference to him defeating the Assyrian army? Uh, that's a siege, or is it in reference to um, the the exile, and then you know the re, the ultimate return in like five thirty eight? Well, we don't really know. Actually, it, it probably more th- those can be like uh, immediate foreshadows, but really, it's probably more than that that he's going to do wonder upon wonder uh, in the in days. So. All right, chapters 30 and 31. Now, you really have to read, kind of like you read 28 and 29, they kind of go together as a couplet. So 30 and 31 go together as a couplet as well. So what you see here in the first part of chapter 30 and then the first part of chapter 31, if you just flip over and probably look at your headings, is a denouncement of the alliance with Egypt, okay? The denouncement of the alliance with Egypt. But then in the second section of chapter 30 and in the second section of chapter 31, there's a call of, or a reminder of God's grace and then a call to repentance in the second half of 31. And this, again, this is why it's so important to understand the literary backdrop and the historical backdrop, because Hezekiah, first of all, good king, bad king, Good king, right? So Hezekiah in chapter 37 and verses 14 through 20 is uh, kind of what we're talking about here. So just turn over there to chapter 37. So Hezekiah, let me just remind you a little bit of the context here, that remember... um, Tiglath-Pileser III is the king of the Assyrian Empire uh, back and when, when Damascus is defeated, so we're around 732, and he really builds up the Assyrian Empire. He dies, and Sargon takes over, defeats um, Israel, and comes down. Sargon dies, and Hezekiah is now on the throne, and he sees a possible moment of weakness. So he makes an alliance with Egypt. Okay, now some of this we get from Scripture. Some of this we also get from Assyrian records. Okay, Um, but Hezekiah made an arrangement or an alliance with Egypt, and so Hezekiah sees an opportunity and withholds tribute to Assyria. Okay, so uh, the uh, Shalmaneser, the the, bat, the king, he's not uh, happy, and he comes, and he is going to destroy them. And while he's on his way, Hezekiah goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he kind of empties out the treasure storehouses, and he sends it to Shalmaneser while he's on his way, and said, here's our tribute and more. And what does Shalmaneser says huh, Great, thanks, I'm still coming to destroy you. And so... Um, he then, kind of as a last resort, turns to God. And so I, I think it is easy for us to read um, the story of Hezekiah and be like, wow, what a righteous guy. I mean, this guy was, and he was, but he was a man, and he was very fallible. And he turns to God, often like we do, and as a last resort, right? Right? Um, and so, instead of turning him at the beginning, kind of all his options are running out, and now he turns to God uh, for God's grace, and he then repents. So, if you look at that section, we're not going to take time to read it, but if you take if you take section to look at fourteen through twenty in chapter thirty-seven, that's Hezekiah turning to the Lord at that last moment for God's grace, and he repents. Uh, and so that's really a fulfillment of chapter 30 and chapter 31. Does that make sense? Again, I know it's a lot. Um, i trying to break it down here. Okay, so we'll look at chapter 30 here in a little bit more detail. So in view here in the first part is a rebellious people. And not so much rebellion against Assyria, but really rebellion against God is, is what you need to kind of think here. And um, God has made very clear ever since he delivered them out of Egypt what he thought of them going back to Egypt for really any reason. He didn't want them to have anything to do with Egypt. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 16, he says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. In Exodus, there's another passage that same thing, and the idea of the horses here, Egypt um, was known for raising um, good horses, and uh, the idea was getting horses for the army, uh, for the military. Now, Put, put the fact that God uh, uh, said you shouldn't do that aside, um, just from a wisdom aspect, trusting in Egypt was a really bad idea because this isn't the first alliance with Egypt um, that's been attempted. And it was tried just about 10 years earlier in 711 when the Philistine city of Ashdod failed. Remember the Philistines also, we talked about this last week, that the Philistines also tried to rebel against Assyria um, but when they did so, they were crushed immediately, and um, the reason why they did that was because they had an alliance with Egypt. So Egypt was supposed to show up and help them out. Guess what? They didn't, and so that's a uh, part. So uh, God actually mocks Egypt in verse 7, and you got to kind of catch the uh, sarcasm here, but in uh, verse 7, he says, Egypt's helped, is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. Some of your translations may say Rahab who does nothing. Um, so I, when you think of Rahab, your, your mind probably, like mine, goes directly to Joshua, right? And the great story of Rahab it has nothing to do with her. It's just the same name. Rahab was a Canaanite mythological creature who was over chaos, Okay. And it was greatly feared, and so what God is saying here is, "Ooh, Egypt, greatly feared. They do nothing, right?" And so there's a there's a sarcasm here that God is having at Egypt's expense. But in chapter thirty, here we see uh, beginning at verse eighteen through the end. And if I was to give you a couple of sections to really kind of sit and meditate on uh, in your devotional life over the next week or two, this would be one passage Um, because I think we see a lot of the character of God. First of all, in verse 18, it says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He's, he waits for you. He waits for you. And and that's not an excuse to presume upon his grace, but it really is showing, um, remember when God makes his glory to pass by Moses and his name is declared, the Lord, the Lord, right? But giving mercy to uh, i 'm blanking on it now, but giving mercy to thousands who call upon his his name he is slow to anger, abounding in patient love, um, and so here we kind of see that being drawn out that God waits uh, for his people, he waits for you, but in that patient waiting, he is both perfectly just and merciful, so he is a God of justice, blessed are those who wait for him. Because in the first part he says, he exalts himself to show mercy to you, and he is a God of justice. Now, often we think of those two not going hand in hand. Right? Because often when we exercise mercy, we're excusing a bad behavior. That bad behavior isn't brought to its proper consequence or, or the, the justice isn't occurring. Right? But God is both just and merciful, and he doesn't compromise either of those characteristics. Right? So that's important. Again, in verse 20, and then 28, uh, cross-reference with chapter 28, 23 through 29, the idea of the farmer. God is our teacher, the Lord is our teacher. And and when you think of a teacher, don't think of your Don't think of your boring, worst teacher that you ever had. Think of the teacher that really nurtured you along, somebody that you really respected, because a good teacher wants to see their people succeed, right? They want to raise them up. They want them to mature, to grow. And then in verses 23 through 26, we see the Lord is our healer. And this is really a foretaste of a greater restoration that we're going to see in chapter 35, Um, but a wonderful image of the Lord as our healer. But he not only is compassionate and helps those who are sick and ailing, but he is also our warrior. He defends us. He protects us, right? And so that's what we see in verses 27 through 33. So we're blowing by these, but I really want you to spend some time there. So, um, 31, we've already kind of talked about. Uh, just a couple of things that I want you to, to look at. Uh, if you look at verses, um, verse 8, 31, verse 8, it says, the, And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. Now, how did the Assyrian army get defeated? at the siege of Jerusalem. Does anybody remember? Yeah. Right. They woke up and they're gone, right? They're dead. Uh, and so they didn't do anything to mount a defense. And and this is, you know, probably what's in reference here, is that God's going to save them. It's not going to be by their own. So he miraculously intervenes. And then um, briefly looking at 32 and 33... The answer is, is that things would be right if there was a divine government, if they recognized the the Lord as king, the Holy One of Israel as king. And remember, that's where we go back to that kind of overarching theme of Isaiah chapter six, that Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Who's on the throne? The Holy One, right, of, of Israel. So, Uzziah has died. There's this uncertainty in the kingdom at that time, but the Lord is always on his throne. And, and really that's what chapters 32 and 33 are, are showing. Now, there is an immediate fulfillment of, of this, of having a righteous king, and that's in Hezekiah. Um, but uh, there's that future fulfillment when Christ will sit on the throne uh, forever and rule uh, justly. So um I have these here. You can you can look um at them. I I think the only point that I want to bring about is I think we all recognize, wouldn't it be wonderful if every seat in government was filled by a righteous person? That would be fantastic, right? Um But the point here in these two chapters is that God brings this about, not the political maneuverings of man. And that should give us comfort. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in our politics uh, or in our country, and our government, I'm not saying that at all. Um, But to remember that ultimately God is going to bring this about in his way and in his uh, perfect timing. It's it's not through political uh, maneuverings of man. All right, well, let's look at these final two chapters here to wrap up. So in chapter 34, it's a little bit of this uh, capstone. I, I don't know if you've been experiencing this, but as you read this section, you probably went, oh, more of the same, right? Kind of this heaviness of uh, judgment. Even though there are these messages of hope interspersed throughout, there's this this heavy judgment, and there's a final uh, a judgment that's coming, and there's an urgent call to hear the warning in verse 1. It says, draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Uh, so it's really a call here, and as you read through, there's, it seems that the focus is Edom, the country or the nation of Edom. But Edom is just representative here, kind of like Babylon was, remember, last week. So Edom here is really just all the enemies of God. All the enemies of God are represented here in Edom, and there's a judgment coming. So don't be uh, complacent. And um, if you go back to chapter 32, I I made a note in your notes here, but if you look at 9 through... um, Nine through the end of the chapter, but the first few, there's there's kind of a focus on the women. Isaiah is really kind of uh, chastising the women, but it it's not um, that he's um, being misogynistic or anything like that. But really, that the women are the one that are going to feel the consequences of the judgment because all the men are going to be dead. And so one of the calls here is to lament and wail, and so the women would go out and they would strip themselves and they would beat their breasts. Um, as a sign of uh, judgment what did I just do Um, so uh, one of the problems or one of the things they're indicted for here is their complacency and that is the idea that hey everything just continues as is it's never going to happen right? and again I think we've mentioned this before 2020 should have taught us (laughs) that that's not the case things can very quickly be interrupted in our lives And that's the way Jesus describes the final judgment, right? Two men are going to be in a field. One's going to be taken. One's not. And uh, the point is they're just going about their daily life. Two women on the threshing floor. uh, They're doing their natural things, and then uh, it happens. Well, back to 34. This is not... uh, some, Some people have used this chapter to... Uh, defend the idea of Zionism or uh, propping up the israel state um, and that that's not r- really what's in view here it's more final um, uh, than that uh, it's the new the, the new heavens and the new earth and God defending his people the remnant uh, here <clears throat> well let 's go to thirty five so um we close we've had all this judgment and I know that it's uh, it's laborious to kind of get through um, and yet we get to chapter 35 and it closes not with more judgment but rather with just a boom burst of light that comes in uh, to the reader's mind here and so if you look at verse 1 and 2 it says the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the d- desert." shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. I have a friend who, uh, whose son lives in Qatar. And, you know, Qatar is a very rich country, but it's desert. It's all desert. And he was telling me that um, uh, this year, I guess, they had just an inordinate amount of rain, which they never get. And he said, Qatar, which is always brown, he says all of a sudden just burst to life with green and flowers and everything that you don't even know is there, right? Um, so kind of the picture here that the desert shall blossom and it shall blossom abundantly. And as you read this chapter, you see that there's a, there's a view of an exiled people, right? And they're looking from afar at the glory of their homeland. So they see Jerusalem afar off. They see their home country And there's an idea of a return from exile, um, and that's more fully developed from chapter 40 on. Um, And it's foreshadowed, certainly, with the return from Babylon um, beginning in 538. But if you read here, something definitely doesn't fit. You can imagine those travelers as they're coming back to Jerusalem from exile. Some of them have never even seen Jerusalem in their life, right? They've only heard about it from their parents. And they come, and they're coming up to Jerusalem, and do they see a glorious, magnificent city? They see a heap of rubble, right? A wilderness. But not so for the exiles and the remnant that it's when it's fully fulfilled. We are going towards the Mount Zion, who will be everything uh, that we can imagine and more. And so there's an encouragement for those who are going through judgment or who are going through the difficult time. Remember that God often brings the remnant through judgment. He doesn't take them out of judgment. And so in verse 3, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Does anybody know where that is also... Talked about, especially the first part, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Hebrews 12, very good. So Hebrews 12, the writer is talking about discipline, right? He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the moment, um, but if a father loves his son, he disciplines him, therefore says, strengthen your weak hands or make firm your feeble knees. So he quotes, he quotes this passage. You know, I think often we want the blessing without going through the curse. And we want the salvation without going through the judgment. And we want heaven without the hell, right? Um, but God has said, that's not my plan. We, we, he wants to bring things through his um to fruition in his timing. And so there's a call here to persevere. Uh, to persevere. Well, then he wraps up with the holy highway. And this is the way to Mount Zion, the way to God Himself. And this would be another section that I'd really encourage you to meditate on. The ransomed are kept safe. And it's it's a highway to God Himself. It's not just a highway to Mount Zion. Right? But remember, the overarching character of God for Isaiah is God's holiness. And so there's a holy highway that directs people to God Himself, and the ransomed are kept safe, and only the redeemed are there. There's nothing unclean. God provides the way. It's not something you have to search for and miraculously discover. God provides the way, there's no threat of evil. Um, and the redeemed are joyful. And I love here in verse 10b, their joy is everlasting. I really appreciated Harrison's um, drawing that out of the transfiguration last week. That Peter asked the question, it is good that we're here, right? Captain Obvious. Um, and so he says, let's, let's make tents." right? There's something in us that all longs for that permanent joy. And there's some of you who are sick. There's some of you who are going through broken relationships. There's some of you who are struggling with job or whatever else that this fallen world can assault us with. And yet God calls us to persevere and to keep our eyes focused on Mount Zion because there's a highway that he has placed you on and he will protect you and he will get you there. And one day your joy will be everlasting. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more depression. There will be no more broken relationships because our joy will be everlasting and will be permanent. And that is the good news that Isaiah ends this section with. Why don't we pray? Gracious Father, we thank you uh, for this good news. There's so much here in your word. Um, And I feel that I often do it injustice in just this short time, but I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and plant them deep in our heart and mind, that we would be encouraged, not discouraged, but rather that we would see that even in your judgment, you are working out your perfect purposes, you are purifying your people. Your word says, even those of us who are fools will be kept on the highway. You keep our foolish wandering to the right and to the left, and you keep us on the straight and narrow. What assurance that brings to us. I pray, Father, that as we now go into worship, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, knowing that we come to the Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let us hear your word afresh, on our lives, let us taste and see in the Lord's Supper that the Lord is good. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen.